everybody, and welcome back to another episode of East Screen, West Screen. This is show number 15 for Wednesday, December 2nd, 2009. Once again, I'm Paul Fox. And I'm Kevin, the real ninja assassin Ma. And we are, yes, we're here to talk to you about ninjas, assassins, and love at seven sight, and some other news. So without further ado, let's get right into it. So our first news story this week is about the Golden Horse Awards. Um, Kevin, you blogged about this recently. Um, yes. You want to take us through some of the more interesting aspects or surprises or um, things that were pretty much expected with regard to these awards? Anything sure. stand out in your mind? Sure thing. Um, last year, if uh, people who read my blog remember, I was able to live blog the awards as it was being shown. Um, but this year, um, no TV channel in Hong Kong was showing it, so I, was, I wasn't able to watch the show. And instead, I had to um, watch the entertainment news channel and, and watch the scroll bar on the bottom update. So not, nothing special about the show this year because I didn't watch it, although I did hear Ang Lee and Maggie Chern show up. Um, but uh, as far as winners go, um, the best picture, the big, the biggest winners are uh, is the uh, Leon Dai Taiwanese film, No Puedo Vivar Sin Ti. Uh, which uh, Kozo reviewed and like has said he liked a lot. Uh, I missed that. Um, it won Best Picture, Best Director, um, and uh, Best Original Screenplay. So essentially, all the major awards um, for Best Actress. Leaping Bing uh, from The Message beat Joe Shun uh, for Best Actress. Uh, personally, I'm not that surprised because I think Leaping Bing had the sort of the flashier role. Um, the the big the big sort of uh, nominated movie, uh, Like a Dream by Clara Law, uh, sadly didn't really, it had nine nominations, but didn't really win anything. Instead, the biggest surprise, I think, of the evening is um, the best actor category, where Nick Chen um, and Huambo uh, tied for best actor. Well, that'll make Kozo uh, have Peppy, because I know he's he's like the number one fan of Huambo, so. Oh, when I saw Huambo one, the first thing I thought was, oh, Kozo would. Love this, and you see his blog. Um, you see his blog. He 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 showed that the the only two actors they took pictures took pictures with this year is Nick Chen and yeah, Wambo. Yeah. So um, and a uh, best supporting so in Hong Kong, uh, more Hong Kong winners. Um, best supporting actress, uh, Kara Hui won for At the End of Daybreak, um, which is a uh, film I liked and his performance I liked as well. Um. And another surprise is uh, the documentary, uh, KJ, Music and Life, which was sort of the sleeper hit this year um, for Hong Kong. It won three, all three awards that it was nominated for. It won Best Documentary, Best Editing, and Best Sound, which is something I'm really surprised about for a documentary. Hmm. Um, and everything else seems seems pretty pretty okay um yeah. seems like the award goes to go to went to people that are supposed to win um how about you paul did you check out the list Do you, yeah you um me? no i i i was um a bit surprised that lee bing bing won for the message uh i mean it was a strong role um you know i i didn't really I mean, her performance was good i didn't know if it was was you know award winning uh but just my opinion Kara hoy winning best supporting actress i love Kara hoy always have Big fan of you know when she used to do uh, kung fu films back in back in the day, and I, I still like seeing her on screen today. Um, the 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 split between Nick Chung and uh, Huang Bo. I mean, what do they do? They like cut the cut the award down the middle and give them each half. I, I've never I've never really understood 
the concept of a tie in in these sort of roles. I mean, that there there's got to be some kind of deciding mark to where you know it goes to one or the other based on based on something. Let them let them get up get up on stage and like do a kung fu fight really quick or. You know, yeah, uh, there, there uh, are do, 15, do, 15 do their do their best three. Andy Lau impersonation or something. Something's <laughs> got to be sort of the deciding, you know, the the, the deciding factor in, in who, who gets the award. Um, but, I, it's, you know, if we go down the list, we can see that, um, you know, a little bit of a nod of rec- recognition towards Donnie um, with Ip Man, best action choreography. Uh, yes. So, yes. Samo Hong, yes. Um, best visual effects for Crazy Racer. And I haven't seen Crazy Racer. Um, I've heard it's it's in the same vein of Crazy Stone, which is one of my favorite movies to come out of the mainland in a long time. Um, <coughs> but I, you know, uh, I, I'm I'm just kind of curious as to what were the, what they were doing in that film uh, that would warrant a sort of a visual effects award because you do oh. you do have a lot of visual effects going on in films like The Message. You know, they've got they've got like. Um, you know, sort of these CG recreations of old Shanghai and, and planes and things. Um, have you seen Crazy Racer? Can you enlighten me a little bit on on why that was maybe up for the award? Yeah, I, I just finished actually watching the film a few days ago. And um, if you remember Crazy Stone, it was made on a very low, so it was shot on TV. But Crazy Racer, it's about 100 times bigger in terms of uh, technical, in terms of technical stuff. So yeah, it actually there was a lot of special effects, um, and it looked really surprisingly, really, really good. Mm. Com- after I've seen, especially after I've seen Crazy Stone, um, it was shot on film, and the light, the lighting, the art direction, the the camera movement, it is so so much more sophisticated than Crazy Stone. Mm. That's why I'm actually not all that surprising that Crazy Racer won best visual effects because the message, the the visual effect in the message was quite showy. Um, yeah. The biggest one was the opening shot from the plane and all the way down to Nanjing. That it was just really showy and was never really convincing. Yeah. Um, whereas Crazy Racer, it was used to sort of enhance the comedy and enhance the style. And it was, I think as even though some at points is not really realistic, but it's also not meant to be. Yeah. yeah. So in a way, it is very impressive what Ning Hao has done to incorporate special effects and and how much more just really how how much better it looks. Mm-hmm. So um yeah I'm not really surprised about that having seen Crazy Racer. Right. Any any disappointments for you? Um any anything that you think what that was nominated that should have won that didn't? Um well the thing is this year I didn't really watch um too a lot of the nomination nominee 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 film nominees, yeah, yeah. Yeah nominees um because a lot of them were sort of lean towards um Taiwan and and mainland Chinese films uh not a lot of Hong Kong participation this year. So I wasn't really, really able to be Varsity, and I haven't been able to see Cow and or Face or not, no one has seen like a dream. Yeah. So um, I don't really know what what I could expect, but I am really happy that Nick Chern won. Um, he did win Best Actor here in Hong Kong and go to Hong Kong Film Awards, and even the fact that he said before he wasn't planning to win at all just sort of made him that much better more worthy to to root for yeah so no, I was really, but, really but it is it is a i i'm a bit surprised to see that film uh put in there because you know beast stalker is from last year i mean we we had on the on on ross's film awards you know nick chung was one of the nominees at the start of the year so mm. for for it to be up against a much more recent film you know, in cow, I was just, I was, I was just kind of surprised about that. I guess they have, 
different standards for what they'll accept in terms of submissions and timeframes and things. Yeah, I believe the time frame is something like um, October to October. I'm not sure. I don't remember when Beast Doctor came out. I think last fall. Yeah. Right. Yeah. So I think it it, it just barely gets in there. Sort of just on the threshold of whatever regulation yeah. they have. Yeah, because look at Forever and Thought. It opened, I think, New Year. Yeah, uh, yeah, that was year. that was that was like January, February, right before New Year. That that was. Yeah. Like, so you know. I was I was really surprised that one got in. No, overall this year, um, not very disappointed because well, there wasn't really much to expect. So. Mm. All right, let's move on to our next story. Um, this is a story coming from a Chinese article that uh, we dug up from. I, I actually came across on Twitter from the uh, Coventry East Asian Film Group. Um, so I got to give a little bit of a nod to them. And uh, Kevin, you've looked over the article in question talking about the film uh, 2012, which we reviewed a couple episodes back. Um, you want to tell us a little bit about what, what the article's talking about with regard to 2012? Yes. Um, as we all know, uh, 2012 has been quite a hit on globally. Um, it's, I think, climbing to be the highest grossing film here in Hong Kong this year. Um, I'm not sure if it's been doing so much so, uh, as well in, in America, but it's also done very, very well in China, especially China, because for those who've seen the film, you know how big of a role China plays. And um, Chinese people, especially the patriotic ones, have sort of taken it, uh, I think, another step beyond where they see it, sort of a patriotic duty to watch the film because of how well, to their, in their eyes, of course, how well regarded Chinese people and the China as a nation is in the film. Yeah. Um, but, so, but, know, to, but to be fair, I mean, you know, it, it, the, the Chinese role is really just sort of, you know, given, given this nod as being, you know, they are, they are in a sense, the saviors of everyone because of their labor efforts. Um, oh, yes. oh, they even, they even took it, taking it to, to, uh, seeing the People's Liberation Army speak English and escorting rich people onto the ship as a out of the point of um, a pride. Mm. I have no idea why. But yeah, I read on an article from Associated Press uh, when it first came out. But anyway, it, it has done very, very well in China. It's made 300 million renminbi already, um, which means it's beaten actually most major blockbusters and may become the third movie um, this year to reach 400 renminbi, 400 million renminbi, and the other only two movies are Transformers 2 and Founder Republic, which both are known for breaking records. Mm. Now, uh, at the same time, it's also um, killing the chances of local films um, in China as well. But if you look at the choices that people have uh, for local films, uh, you see there's really not much of a competition out there. Um, one is... Um, a movie called Panda Warriors. Um, well, no, sorry, Panda Express. <laughs> oh my god, Panda Express. Um, this looks like a comedy, mm. uh, starring Liu Ye. <clears throat> um, that was was uh, projected to make 100 million renminbi, but has only made 20 million so far. There's also a movie called um, the Chinese is called Fortune Meishi, which is uh, about something like aliens, a uh, family friendly comedy about aliens that also has Wan Jing in it. It was uh, projected at 25 to 30 million renminbi. So far, only made 6.6 million. And um, even now, um, Mulan, the Jingle Ma film, uh, opened last weekend in China, was projected to make 100 million. 
And in the first week, it only made 32 million. So now they have to lower the projection down to 80. Mm. Um, so the, the issue here is, is it a matter of um, many screens showing 2012 dominating the whole the, the cinemas? Or is it a matter of um, these films just couldn't compete just based on quality or production values? Because mm. um, if you hear, I mean, just hear the name, Panda Express. Um, or, or, you know, Wan Jing in a movie about aliens in China. I've seen, I've seen the, the, the is spots that, last time. Is that, a, is that like a sequel to Wesley's Mysterious Files or something? Or? Oh, I think this was intentionally trying to be funny. Okay. <laughs> so, but uh, no, um, just, these films just don't look very good. Yeah. I mean, you, you have 2012, which looks impressive. It's a big production. Um, and, you know, things blowing up and something that makes these, that actually stretches the, the, the capability of these new Chinese theaters, whereas you got the Wanjing movie or Panda Express, which is something that people can just watch on VCD. Mm. Uh, you can't really blame 2012 for dominating. It's it's a free market, a relatively free market. Free market. Yeah, I'd be interesting to see if it's the same cut that we saw here, or if, right. if it's if it's somehow edited in in certain ways. Because I mean, there 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 are some sensitive things going on. I mean, there there are Tibetans in the film. Mm -hmm. uh, you know that that have a that have a role, uh, important or not. I, I'm wondering if those scenes got cut at all. Um, mm -hmm. So I, don't know, I mean, it, good 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 on 2012 for doing well. Um, yeah, maybe this means and, we'll see a a sequel. <laughs> and, <laughs> 2013. Yeah. And actually, any anyone who's whining about 2012 taking up all the screens is not true because if I'm I'm looking at the uh, Golden Harvest theaters in Shenzhen right now, which is um probably the highest grossing theater in Shenzhen. And I see movies like, okay, I see District 9. I see 2012 taking up two screens. I see um, Mulan taking up three, uh, two screens as well. So it's not like 2012 is dominating, like taking up like eight screens like the Founder Republic did. Well, maybe so, this will serve as some incentive um, for the mainland Chinese Film Bureau to up, start upscaling some of their post-production facilities and you know, thinking more in terms of visual effects and special effects. Well, and, how about their directors and scriptwriters? I mean, <laughs> I mean, Panda Express. I'll show you the the, the poster later, Paul. Thing and put it up. It just if if I see a po that and I see a poster for twenty twelve, even I would choose to. I think I think you would choose choose twenty twelve. All right. Uh, next bit of news, Kevin. You want to uh, expand on this this story a little bit because I'm not too familiar with it. Yes. Um. Actually, this is a Taiwanese cinematographer, um, Mark Lee Ping Bing, who is uh, very well known for being one of the two cinematographers on In the Mood for Love, um, a collaborator of Ho Xiao Shen, um, also worked with uh, An Hui, um, Tian Zhuan Zhuan, some of the biggest um, filmmakers in, in, in Asia, really. Mm. Um, he recently uh, was a cinematographer on the adaptation of uh, Haruki Murakami's Norwegian Wood. And uh, he was uh, in an interview um, complaining about uh, shooting in digital because um, uh, the director, um, a Vietnamese director, he in, he shot um, the last film uh, with Kimura Takuya and uh, the big Pan-Asian production, um, I Come With The Rain. He shot that on digital and he really liked it. So for this big uh, adaptation, uh, really anticipated because Norjun was actually one of my favorite novels and many people's favorite novels. So um, he decided to shoot on digital. And actually, Li Pingping really didn't like, apparently, he really didn't like shooting on digital. He believes that um, 
it's because uh, the ability to to um, fix everything on the spot to you get the ability to just look at a monitor and change things for him it sort of takes away from the technical expertise needed for a cinematographer. Um, personally, I'm I'm kind of agree. I kind of agree because when you watch a film, when you see digital, it's really obviously digital. Um, sometimes it sort of cheapens the film, like uh, this year's Michael Mann's Public Enemies. For me, even though I saw why he shot in digital uh, for the intimate feeling of his visuals, I think it lost the art direction and and a lot of the visuals sort of lost its beauty and sort of artistic value by going digital. Mm. Um, and I, I'm still sort of leaning towards liking to watch a movie that was shot on 35 millimeter. Um, I don't know about you, Paul, what do you think? Well, you know, it, it really depends. Uh, I've seen, I've seen some really good work done, um, done on digital. Uh, I think that ultimately though, that's the way the sort of the trend uh, of things to come. Um, I, I know that people that I've talked to, um, that there's, there's a movement that's sort of very anti film, you know, they say film is sort of a, uh, chemical and, and dirty process. And you, I mean, again, the film look is something that I think that a lot of us, you know, who are film buffs really like and, and admire. And I know a lot of people who work in video, they will spend lots of money to get special filters to make the video convert over to have a film look to it. Um, but I think that ultimately, once they start getting more and more digital projection theaters and people get more used to uh, the, the, the resolution in, in HD and in Blu-ray, that perhaps we'll start to maybe move away from the film look. And that will be something that's sort of left to uh, art, you know, art films and, and some independent films who can afford to still work in that medium. Mm. I think what Li Pingbing here is complaining about is he's afraid that shooting on digital would take away his skills. Um, I don't know if he was complaining about the look itself because there's a camera out there called the Red One. Yeah, which can, Red One. Um, yeah, that can recreate the film look and, and give film resolution with digital. Yeah. I think that's a really good... Um, I don't remember ha seeing much films that were shot on the Red One. Um, but if, if, if what I've been told is right, it should be creating the look of film quite accurately. Yeah, it's an expensive I, camera, but that is one that a lot of independents um, in, in, in least forms and things that I've read that a lot of independents, it's like the choice of independents. It's, it's, it's sort of at the high end of, of the, the mid-range cameras that you can go out and sort of somewhat afford to buy yourself if you want to be an independent filmmaker. Um, yeah. But again, I think that, you know, when you talk about things like skill sets and I, we may have talked about it, we may have talked about this before. And I know I've talked about it with my students and with other, other people, you know, film, film industry experts and people who work in the industry with the, the idea with, you know, movies now becoming done in HD, um, the resolution has changed even for television. I mean, if you, we were watching some TVB dramas that done in HD and you can see the flaws. You can see so many more flaws and things on a person's face and you can see the makeup, you know? Mm -hmm. So this is going to, it's, you know, you talk about skill sets. I don't think it's really going to make somebody lose their skill sets, but certainly they have to change their skill sets. 
You know, it's going to require makeup artists to come up with new techniques to be able to blend in better with the, with the lighting. Lighting people are going to have to come up with new forms of lighting um, to create different kinds of shadows that, you know, work a little bit differently in the higher resolution. And filmmakers uh, in the same vein, they're going to have to learn to do uh, newer types of camera techniques. Um, it's just... You know, I think for if somebody is used to working in the sort of the older generation, there's going to be a sort of a technological age gap that comes in and they're not going to want to maybe make the switch, you know, and they'll have excuses or, or they'll have, um, I don't want to say really excuses, but they'll have ideas like this where they, they think that the older medium, you know, requires skill and the newer medium is all about the technology doing it for you. I don't think it's as simple as that. I really don't. I mean, I because you so. can see, you, you, you can look at student work where students are using cameras that are doing a lot of automation, autofocus, whatever. And there's mm -hmm. a distinctive difference between somebody who really knows the camera they're using well and knows how to use it well, um, knows how to work with the settings, um, the lighting, the, the, you know, doing, doing certain focus features and things like that, as opposed to somebody who doesn't know what they're doing. They're just kind of point and shoot. Um, you can see differences like that. And I think that it's going gonna, it's gonna to cause a sort of a new generation of young people who only work in that medium uh, to sort of emerge. And they will challenge the older generation. Uh, mm -hmm. and, it, it's, you know, and that's the thing. You've got, look at films like Cloverfield, right? Mm -hmm. uh, and some of the films that have, that have since come out, there have been a lot of copycats of Cloverfield. But, what, you know, that is, that is using film technique and that's using... Uh, handheld and it's using video look. Um, District 9 uh, did, did a lot of the same thing because that's sort of what the young generation is used to seeing. You know, they're, yeah. they're this YouTube generation. And for them, you know, the entertainment has a certain look and feel, and that's not a film look and feel anymore. So I don't know. It'll be interesting to see how that kind of pans out. Well, actually, going back to the red, um, I'm looking at the uh, website for the red one, and it turns out um chair uh jumper um also district nine was shot in red and remember district nine i thought when they were not on the digital stuff it looked like film to me yeah so i'm quite surprised um i think it's just sort of my our i guess our attachment to the grain all right uh last two little bits of news stories um coming from uh reuters uh first is about ben kingsley who you may remember starred in the Indian role of uh, Gandhi many years back, uh, winning an Oscar for that. Um, he is trying to make another film where he's going to play the Indian Mughal Emperor uh, Shah Jahan. And if you know a little bit about Indian history, I guess he is the person who uh, basically built the Taj Mahal in honor of his third wife, which was his favorite. And he's attempting to get... Um, Aishwarya Rai to take on that role, and he's out there uh, trying to get some money together to produce the film. So if you're a budding uh, film investor, you might want to look up Mr. Kingsley and maybe his film. I'll write him a check tomorrow. Uh, another bit of news we can talk about. Uh, actor Alec Baldwin, um, he's talking about calling it quits. Um, if you're not familiar with Alec Baldwin, he 
He's done quite a few films, in fact. Back in his younger days, he was doing films like Hunt for Red October. He was in Beetlejuice. Um, he's, he's done quite a bit, but he says he considers his entire movie career a complete failure because he says the goal of movie making, and I'm, and I'm quoting him here, the goal of movie making is to star in a film where your performance drives the film, and the film is either a soaring critical or commercial success. And I've never had that. Um, so while some people might look at his career and say that he's had, you know, a string of successful films, films that have made money, he feels that he himself has never uh, been successful in a film. And so he's not going to do any more films. Um, he's, he's found great success on his TV series, 30 Rock, um, written and produced by Tina Fey. Uh, if you're not familiar with 30 Rock, um, you can try and look up some of the episodes online. Um, depending on where you're living, but it's a really popular um, half-hour sitcom series. It's in its, I want to say, fifth season now. Um, but he says basically when that show, which I guess he's predicting will end in 2012, when that show wraps, um, that's it. He's going to sort of uh, quit acting. Um, doesn't really say what he's thinking of going on to do. Some people speculate he may go into politics because he's got some very strong political views. Um, but I know that a lot of my friends and a lot of people who watch 30 Rock think that he's just um, amazing and perfect for the role that he plays as the this sort of top head television producer. Um, so it'll be it'll be a shame for some of us to see him go. Um, and, and but if he does want to move on to other things, uh, I wish him well. It's too bad because they're saying that his new role in the um Meryl Streep film um, is complicated. Might earn him another Oscar nomination. Yeah, yeah. Um, you know, it's, it's, he's, a, he's a complex kind of a guy. I mean, he's had some controversy, you know, regarding his family that cropped mm -hmm. up a couple years ago, and there was thoughts that maybe he was going to uh, stop doing 30 Rock. Um, but I guess, you know, he's got a lot of fans for that show, and he, he decided to sort of press forward and continue on. Um, I think I think he's overly critical on his career. I mean, again, I think he's had, he's been, you know, it, it, I know a lot of actors, struggling actors who would love to be as successful as he has been, maybe even half as successful as he has been um, as an actor. Um, and, you know, he is part of the Baldwin family and that uh, they have a you know, somewhat of a legacy in, in Hollywood. Um, but, you know, again, it's his choice and uh, hopefully he'll go on to do even greater things in whatever he chooses to do. let's move on and it's time to talk about our east screen film for this week and that is the new alfred chung film love at seventh sight um now i didn't get a chance to see this film because it was playing and only a few theaters here in hong kong and um just couldn't find a time and a location that was suitable for me but kevin you managed to get out and watch this last week uh... so <laughs> give us the down low on uh Director Chung's 
I think this is what was the last film he did? Um, Contract Lover. Contract Lover. Yeah. So this is like yeah, that was that was a couple years ago. So um, yeah, and I'm sorry by by in comparison, Contract Lover is like Citizen Kane. <laughs> oh dear. It's just I'm sorry. I'm going to first start out by saying my personal opinion. Um, is something that not everyone at the Love HK Film Critics Group uh, agree with, but I think Love the Seventh Sight might be this year's worst film. Really? Um, yes. Uh, sadly, um, it stars uh two actors as a as a love story. You could say. Uh, I'm trying to find out who it stars, but I believe one the actor, the main actor, is um uh, a uh. Taiwan idol, idol drama actor, and the female it's a uh, Wu Xiao Lu, I think she was. Uh, I remember in uh, uh, Blood Brothers, uh, she was the the actress in Blood Brothers. Um, the story uh, is how do I say this? Okay, so so the main main actor, the guy, he's um, he's a sound recorder. Uh, he he's he's apparently obsessed with finding sound in his life or something like that, and then uh, somehow he has to go to Beijing because he lost his job, and then he um goes and he he some a girl named uh Bai Ye uh somehow just sort of walks up to him and goes here uh go on a road trip with me, and then uh in a in a nice little RV uh this is actually the first RV I've seen in Asia but anyway. Uh, so that's interesting to see. Anyway, so so he goes on this this trip with this complete stranger um, for some reason, and then uh, they go to these little these places around Beijing, and they agree to stop at a couple places, uh, go on a little road trip, and then and then split by the time they they split up by the time they get to a place. But uh, of course, the girl in true melodrama fashion is suffering from terminal illness. Um, and around the 30, 40 minute mark, um, something happens. Um, it's, you, you think the movie is about to end, but Albert Chern uh, sort of twists the movie into um, kind of an Alfred Hitchcock territory with a uh, doppel, possible doppelganger and, um, and literary devices and uh, obsessive uh, personalities and things like that. It's, and the thing is, none of it is really a, a thriller. It's just, supposedly a romantic comedy that was never really funny um ne- neither romantic nor funny actually um and uh, a friend of ours uh, a mutual friend of ours uh when we watched the film he decided to walk out 20 minutes in and uh, i wish i joined him because the first half an hour is totally unengaging the the acting was terrible the direction by overturn is it's terrible because I, as I wrote on my Twitter, you watch the movie, you have no idea how an experienced director like Alfred Chern loses complete control of the movie. Hmm. You have no idea what happened. Um, it does get better after the big twist, a little better. I mean, it's all relative, but by the time you get out, by the time you're, it's over, you're just like, oh, finally. Hmm. It's um, painful to watch, especially the acting, especially the, the entire plot and the whole logic issue. It just, none of it really worked for me. Oh, I'm sorry. Mm. There's not much else to say about the film, um, except that it does get relatively better, but it's just terrible. It's it's totally patronizing. It's, it's um, yeah, it's pretty bad. <laughs> does does uh, Alfred Chung make a cameo in it? Ah, yes. Alfred Chung shows up um, as the girl's father. Uh, and actually, he was he was the best part of the film, um, but again, uh, relative. It's all relative. He's he should be standing behind the camera, making sure the whole film works. Instead, 
he his best work is in front of the camera. That's a shame um, because I mean, if we talk about older films, uh, you know, I, I know I was talking last week about you know, eighties and nineties films and and Wong Jing's earlier work being amongst my favorite. Alfred Chung, a lot of Alfred Chung's early films are you know on my favorites list. You know, things like Her Fatal Ways and and some of the other initial work he did. What do you think happened? Has he just been away from it too long, or is he well, this, is he just trying to fit this in so it will fit into multiple markets so it'll make money? Or, oh, well, this is a remake of his previous film, apparently, uh, called "Let's Let's Make Laugh," which was uh, which stars Cecilia Yip and oh, that's Kenny, Kenny B. B, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. That those two stars would have been much better in this story. Right now, you have um, I found the the name of the guy Mike Hu, who who does. He ex- he has no charisma. He's kind of handsome, but and the thing is, um, in the second half of the film, at, at some point, he has to pretend that he's acting, and it's even worse than his acting in the first half. Mm. Like when he's acting, when he's pretending to be acting, he's actually a worse actor. It, it's he's a leading man that is completely not worth following. And um, Li Xiaolu, I mean, she she tries her best, and um, I think the best thing about Li Xiaolu, uh, or the most attractive thing, is that she looks like. Joe Shun. So at points you kind of wish that Joe Shun was in the movie, um, which is good. Um, but other than that, it's just there's really not much redeeming value in this film. Mm-hmm. I was just, it was just sitting there, and Kozo at multiple points had to turn to me and go, "Just tough it out, Kevin. Just tough it out. It's, it's almost there. Just tough it out." Yeah, and yeah. I tried really hard. So we know it wasn't Kozo who walked out. It must I have to I have to narrow down the. Uh the options then it's our very um relatively angry friend <laughs> that's that's kind of who i predicted yes. who will, who will yeah. remain anonymous because we yes. don't want to single anybody out yeah. um all right uh well that's too bad um sorry as, maybe as... you probably enjoy it more than i did i think you enjoyed contract lover more than i did paul so maybe you find i did i did i mean i i, I remember seeing contract lover i mean contract lover is not a great film it's a it's there's a lot of the same jokes i mean it, it's it's in in a, in a way he's following the same path as wang jing he he was doing a lot of the same jokes it's a lot of the same kind of story cliches that were all done in films in in the 80s and the 90s um but you know contract lover there were some elements of it that i found fairly entertaining um and you know richie ren and fan bingbing were i thought were both fine and and made a fairly decent you know match in that film but again it wasn't it was nothing we haven't seen before um it's it's just too bad that he doesn't seem to be able to find new footing um maybe maybe uh the the tastes the uh, and the the comedy styles of film uh have just sort of moved beyond his reach to sort of, sort of capture I, I think it's really not the problem with the concept itself. Um, if done right, it would have been interesting. Mm. But just everything about it, it's so... I don't know, it's just so terribly done. It's just, you wonder, like I said earlier, how, how does a guy lose control like that? Yeah, yeah. and, and I mean, again, especially somebody who's got a lot of you know films like we were mentioning under his belt. Right. <laughs>
All right, well, let's move on to our West screen pick for this week. And that is the film Ninja Assassin, um, starring Rain. Rain! Rain yes, uh, the, the, the Korean singing sensation who's attempting to move into film and has gotten a couple roles. And this is his second role, I think, in a Hollywood film. Um, so Ninja Assassin, uh, just to give you a little bit of a breakdown, this is a film that in many ways is being produced by the Wachowski brothers. And, and I think if I read correctly, Grant Hill, I, I, I need to check that, but I, I saw the name, I think I saw the name Grant Hill on, uh, Oh, and it's not the basketball player. Don't worry. Oh, it's not, not the basketball. Player. Okay. No, so I, don't think so. I, I thought, I thought I was like, is that, is that, you know, is that the basketball player moving into, um, but anyway, so yes, Ninja Assassin starring Rain. Um, this is a film that is, I guess, the Wachowski brothers um, and director James uh, Matigu. I'm not sure how you would pronounce his last name. Um, and uh, along with uh, the, 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 the writer and story or concept creator Matthew Sand, trying to revitalize the ninja series from uh the 80s i guess you would say um so you've if you're if you're not familiar with these back in the 80s you had um a long list of ninja films um with names like pray for death revenge of the ninja into enter the ninja uh rage of honor uh the the, the list goes on um and primarily one of the primary stars of these films was um, the the American Japanese actor Sho Kasugi, and I I remember loving these films as a kid. I was you know it was either kung fu or ninjas for me. Um, you go back and what you watch them today, and they're really cheesy. This is sort of a an attempt to revitalize the the ninja genre, the ninja myth, and very much I would I say I, the, this movie gave me a very Tarantino ish kind of feel. So what Tarantino was doing for like Hong Kong films and for other pulp fiction style films um, with his Kill Bill series, I kind of got that same, the, the, the same vibe here, although not, not quite as nearly well, ex as, not quite as nearly well executed uh, as it could have been. Um, so basically the, the basic story is you've got, um, you've got this, the, this idea that, for hundreds and hundreds of years, um, ninjas have been operating out of out of nine clans, and these nine clans they have they're trained in secret arts and they go out and they perform assassinations and the the, the payment for these assassinations is always the same. It's remained the same um, pro progressively um, up until the present day, which is a um, hundred pounds of gold to kill one person. Um, so obviously, as gold and inflation have have increased, you know the the value has increased, and it's made these clans very rich. And um, so basically, this is the it's the story of this young woman uh, played by Naomi Harris. She plays a character called Mika, who is an sort of an investigative um, investigative. Uh, oh, what are the guys in? What are they called? Uh, forensic scientist. Yeah, she's a, she's a forensic scientist. 
And she's come across a lot of evidence of these things, uh, these assassinations, and she's trying to convince her boss that, you know, ninjas exist. And, um, yeah, so you you get the, you, you get, and she's working for this, like, European Interpol type of organization. So they're based in Germany, but everybody's speaking English. Um, all of the ninjas are speaking English, Rain's speaking English, everybody's speaking English, which was, which was one of my big problems with the film. If you're going to do a film like this, that's international, I don't need the, the ninjas in the ninja clan training each other using English. You know, they should be using, you know, Japanese or, or some other language, whatever. Yes, big brother. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> um, so yes, you, but basically what, what what ends up happening is you've got three different films going on here. First, you've got the film with the scenes between uh, Mika and her boss, and her going around and interviewing people and trying and trying to put the pieces together to determine that yes, ninjas are real; they actually exist. Then you've got these flashback sequences that occur like every five minutes. Um, it's a flashback to this one character um, who's named Rizo, who's played by Rain in the present day, but he's played by different actors uh, in these flashbacks at different ages. Um, so it's going through the very, you know, very typical training sequences of him, you know, having been taken, you know, stolen, I guess, as an orphan to, the, to become part of this clan and all these other young people training in the very brutal ways that are ninjutsu. Um, and so then you've got, you've got rain in the modern day running around and doing his ninja things. And so ultimately it's like these three different stories, three different films in, in some ways, because in some cases, the look and the feel of these are completely different, but ultimately they merge together after I'd say about the first hour of the film or so. Um, and so because... Mika, this character, has uncovered the truth of ninjas. She must die. And it turns out that Raizo, um, you know, he's actually uh, being hunted by his own clan, and so he has to die, and the two of them end up teaming up. The one real bright spot in all of this, as I said, is this is, this is a throwback to the ninja movies of the 80s, is that Shokasugi actually is here. Uh, he hasn't worked in a film in over 10 years, um, they pulled him out of the closet to play uh, Ozuno, who's sort of the head of the Ozu clan. And uh, he's a very brutal master, and he expects nothing but complete loyalty to the family. Um, and ultimately, this is, cause, this, is, this is the main cause of problems. So the first, I want to say the first hour to hour and 15 minutes is exp exposition intercut with a few action scenes. And the action scenes are actually pretty good. Um, but you have to do a lot of suspension of disbelief because these are not these are not ninjas in the normal sense. These are ninjas who can throw um, throwing stars faster than machine gun bullets. And they can blend into shadows almost magically. Uh, Rain can heal himself like Wolverine. Um, so these are, these are very much supernatural ninjas and they never really try and expand into that aspect of it at all. Why can, why can these, these guys do these supernatural techniques when their training seems very much, um, simply like intensive training? Um, so you've got scenes where 
lots of ninjas coming in very traditional black ninja garb are actually taking out commando teams with machine guns. Um, so there's a lot of suspension of disbelief that has to go on. Um, but if you can get beyond that, the action is very well choreographed, but it is very, very bloody. This is a Category 3 film in Hong Kong because of decapitations, amputations, and lots and lots and lots of blood. Um, very much in Japanese samurai film style. Um, and actually, the, 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 in the final showdown scene, some of the cin cinematography that they have is very, very good. If you are not a fan of rain, however, you may find that the blood is not the most distasteful aspect of the film, <laughs> but it is in fact the naked, glistening, greasy body of rain, um, as he seems, seems to never have any clothes on. Um, there's just lots and lots of gratuity in terms of the flesh of rain. Um, and he's greasy, he's sweaty, he's scarred up, he gets cut up. So there's definitely a lot of beefcake here for the young ladies or young men who happen to uh, be in the rain fan club. Um, so yeah, it's, it's, if you're a fan of the, if, if you're a fan of sort of the ninja genre, you've been looking for them to bring ninjas back and the very traditional sort of ninja mask, ninja climbing <laughs> claws kind of sense, um, then this is here. And this is something you'd probably enjoy. I was, I was, I was waiting for Michael Dudikoff um, from the American Ninja series to sort of pop up, uh, <laughs> you know, in a cameo, but I don't, I don't think I saw him anywhere. Um, but yeah, the, Kevin, what was your take on this? Um, I wish they'd gotten uh, a director that was more familiar with um, directing action because um, a lot of the action sequences were shot in that sort of close-up, um, hand handheld camera way that the American action films have been having sort of leaning towards. So again, uh, because the whole film is, is like take every whole film takes place in at night. So you can never really see what's going on when when it when they're moving a little faster than usual. Yeah. Um. That was my problem. Also, I think the biggest problem is the whole supernatural ninja thing. Um. Real ninjas. Yes, there are real ninjas. They. Their skills are based on just you know having a better handle of certain things like reflexes. It, it, whereas in this movie, they're like bats. You can see the shadow crawling along the wall, yeah. CGI'd, of course, into a building. Instead of using actual skills, they sort of shadow their way in, in and out of fight. It, it, it sort of took me out of the film. And I yeah. think it's... Uh, the, I was sitting around two groups of men, and at points, they're like, come on. Yeah, there's definitely... This yeah. is definitely... You have to do a lot of suspension of disbelief. Uh, and that was... I, I think that was one of my problems. This is not really about, you know, real senses of deception and you know really understanding the use of shadow or you know the use of skill um and there's a there's a lot of there's just a lot of nonsense in it as well again um you've got a commando team using infrared goggles they've got machine guns and they're being taken down by these guys who can flip out you know ninja stars uh, as fast as machine gun bullets that can penetrate body armor and you know the one thing the one thing that didn't really make sense. Ah, sorry, hang on. I've got a phone. Um, the one thing that didn't really make sense is that you've got this whole idea that nobody believes that ninjas exist, um, in, in part because governments try to keep it covered up, but in part, it's be, you know you would think that 
you know, because you in the beginning you see a couple hits on like some 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 thugs and things, and you know you, you you've got these guys whipping out ninja stars and they're stuck in walls everywhere. You'd think that this would make it in the news at some point, you know that oh there's a crime scene and there's twenty ninja stars stuck all over the place or that you know there's a scene where they're just whipping ninja stars and they're all embedded in the hood of this car and then there's <laughs> this huge ninja fight you know with all these ninjas running down the highway and they're fighting rain in the highway and, and it's like oh yeah nobody's gonna whip out a mobile phone and put this on youtube right so <laughs> um so there's just there's just a sense of real you you really need to take this with a grain of salt um and if you can do that if you're just looking to see a lot of blood and gore or greasy rain, um, you'll probably come away somewhat entertained. But if you're a person like me who you don't really like to have to suspend your disbelief quite that much, you may be a bit disappointed. You know what? I, I like reading the film. I don't know about you. It's not even the abs. I well, was, you know, that's a good fun. point. It's I have to say this. He does have a good screen presence. And I think that, yeah. you know, he's been well-groomed. He's, you know, if you've seen Rain's music videos, he knows how to... You know, he he does have a physical presence. I'm not sure if the problem I'm... is that his character is not very well developed. Well, his character is just, I mean, it's the strong, silent ninja type. I mean, there's not a whole lot for him to do in terms of emoting. Um, any of the emoting scenes were all done with the younger versions of him. So uh, there's not much for him to do here. Um, but that might be a good thing. I mean, he may not have the range, especially when you're talking about him using English. Mm -hmm. um, to really do a lot quite yet. But I do think the, you know, he does have glistening muscles aside. He <laughs> does have a, he does have a strong presence on screen. I'll give him that. And he also has a very special heart. Yes. <laughs> a lot of people have that special heart in this film. Um, but Sho Kasugi, he, he sort of made the film worthwhile for me, seeing him on screen again um in a role that you know sort of made him famous in the 80s and he plays it up very well uh for for what he does and um uh, that that sort of made the film worthwhile All right, it's time to move on to our Flying Buddha Picks of the Week. Um, and this week, my pick is going to be related to uh, Ninja Assassin somewhat. If you're in the mood for a ninja film, uh, my pick is going to be Azumi. Uh, this is a Japanese film starring the young pop actress Aya Ueto, who I like a lot. Um, I've seen her in some Japanese dramas, and I like her in some of the other films she's done. Um, you might not think that she is uh, ninja material, but this is this is a film about Japanese ninjas. And when Japan does films about Japanese ninjas, they're not like American films with the everybody in black and tabby boots and climbing claws and the ninja masks. Um, Japanese ninjas are more about you know just going around killing people. Um, and so basically, she is very similar to the ninja assassin story. She is sort of an orphan brought up by a master, um, trained in the ways of a ninja, um, who, uh, I don't want to give too much away, but it's it's got one of the best openings, pretty much, uh, of a film in terms of what they do to 
you know, train, train the kids uh, into ninjas and the sort of their final lesson. It was, it was one of the best moments of a film that I think I've seen with regard to ninja films. And they do similar things in, in Ninja Assassin and some of the older ninja movies, but I think it's very well executed in Azumi. Um, you, you may have a problem with her being that she's sort of this cute pop star actress in the role, but um, actually the, the, the story itself is based on a manga, and I think that she you know, kind of comes across as that sort of manga-style character uh, very well. It's got some pretty good CG, some very good action sequences. It's got quite a bit of blood in it, and she goes around basically hunting down people that she thinks... Uh, you know, has has done her wrong and betrayed her, and um, very similar story. I, I think it's stronger uh, in many ways to Ninja Assassin, so I'd recommend giving it a giving it a try. And there actually there are two films. Uh, there's a sequel which isn't quite as good as the original. The sequel is uh, Azumi Two: Death or Love. Both are available uh, on video DVDs. There are there are various versions. Um, you can also get them both through Netflix. They're not up on iTunes. Uh, I checked on iTunes. iTunes doesn't have them, but uh, Netflix does. So if you've got a Netflix account or if you can get out to a video store, you should be able to find it. Kevin, what's your pick for us this week? Yeah, while your pick uh, this week, Paul, is uh, Ninja Assassin related, my pick is Rain related. Uh, And that is Rain's Hollywood debut, Speed Racer. Um, I didn't pick it just because of Rain. Um, I still like the film a lot. I think it's uh, probably... One of the most underrated commercial films of the decade. Um, it's in- incredible fun. Uh, it's made by the Wachowski brothers, and um, they use a lot of sort of new techniques here that um that haven't been used in film before, like the transition, the head wipes, and um and the use of green screen and the animation, uh, mixing animation and and human characters. And while it is a kids' film with uh, plenty of um uh, uh homoerotic innuendo, it's also really really fun as a family film. And even Rain here, who has a minor role, a supporting character, although a pretty important one, and even as minor as it is, I think he did fine for his Hollywood debut. Um, he didn't get to show off his uh, six-pack, sadly, but I thought he did fine. He had a really complicated line, uh, which went something like, um, that's, a co- uh, that's a commodity I I don't waste my time on, which, you know, even now, here for me, it's really hard to pull off, and he pulls it off fine. So Speed Racer looks great on Blu-ray, um, looks and tons of fun. Um, turn it up with Big TV. Enjoy. Well, I think that's going to wrap things up pretty much for our episode this week. Um, we'll be back next week to be talking about films like Mulan and hopefully the film, the new animated film Nine. And we should be following up very quickly thereafter with a very special episode on Storm Riders 2, also known as Storm Warriors. Um, hopefully we can get the... I've got some plans to do sort of a, a live discussion before and after the film, if I can get the technical aspects worked out. Um, so if you'd like to follow along with Kevin and his blog, you can find him over at the lovehongkongfilm.com page. And if you'd like to keep up with Kevin's daily day-to-day grind on his Twitter, um, Kevin... How can they follow you on Twitter? Yes, uh, everyone, you can follow me on Twitter. Uh, it's the Golden Rock, one word. You can also uh, read my re- movie reviews on uh, www.yp.com.hk uh, slash movies. And, and also now I've started a blog on Alive Not Dead. 
um, it, to follow my script writing process over the next couple of months as I'm doing my thesis script. Um, it's the, ad the address is www.alivenotdeadoneword.com slash the golden rock, also one word. So I'll we'll put the links up uh, for that on the site. So that will wrap things up for this episode. We will be back next week, hopefully at the same time and same place. Until then, uh, we wish you good viewing. Remember that one day death will come for us all, as Rain has told us. And we will see you next time. See you next time, you all with very special hearts. Cheesy lines. Uh, I, I'd written down a note from Ninja Assassin. Uh, one of his lines was, One day, death will come for us all. It's like, oh, come on. There was a great line that's a contender for line of the year. The man says, She has regained my sensitive soul. <laughs> this awesome line. Yeah. Oh, who writes yeah. this stuff? Come on. And there, I don't know if you caught it. There, you may have, been, may have been asleep at the time, too. There was a scene where... Um, uh, something happened. It was an assassination or something, and um, it was like it, it. You know, it was it was there was a big spurt of blood, and then they cut. The very next scene was this guy pumping ketchup out on a hot dog, and I was like, "Oh, oh that was great! Come on!" <laughs> I love Could that. Could you be any more contrived? I'm like, "Come on, guys!" I mean, that's like that's like film school stuff. I love that. That was my favorite cut of the film. It's great. Uh, you have fought your family and today, or, or something like you abandoned oh, you, your real family. Yeah, or was this, do you know how much you have hurt me? Yeah. And it's like, yeah, I did it on purpose. Why do you think I did it? You know, it's like, <laughs> just kill him already. And the name Ninja Assassin, I mean, I, I posted on Twitter, isn't that a bit redundant? It's, yeah. It's if redundant. you're like a ninja, aren't you already an assassin? Or is it, yeah. you know, maybe they've got Ninja Dry Cleaner, you know, or, you know, uh, the ninja chef. <laughs> or like Cooking Mama. I don't know. Cooking Ninja. That's a game I play. Cooking. I should make a movie. Cooking Ninja. Ninja Chef. Yeah, that'll be Stephen Chow's next film. Yeah. Rain hiding the shadows of a uh, uh, green pepper. Yeah.